All right. Tell me something good. A journey through the Gospel of John. That's where we're going to be starting today. Uh, my name is Todd, and so I'll be preaching this first message. Uh, if you've got your Bible or on your phone, go ahead and flip it over to John chapter 1. That's where we're going to be getting. But before we get there, we want to jump in a helicopter and go up way up high in the sky, and we're going to look out over the, the Gospel of John and, 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 and get just an overview of what's going on in this book few things that we're going to notice. First off, uh, good news. We all like to hear good news, whether it's about the weather, our health, or the economy. But a couple of things about good news. Sometimes good news can change. Maybe the weather's nice this afternoon, but tonight a storm is coming. So good news can change. It doesn't always last. Another thing is sometimes good news is actually bad news for someone else. Maybe your team won, and that's good news, but that means that my team lost, and that's bad news for me. So sometimes good news isn't good news for everyone. Well, get this, the word gospel, this is our journey through the gospel of John, and the word gospel literally means good news. So tell me something good. Well, that's what the book of John is all about, and this is good news that doesn't change it wasn't good news yesterday and today it's not. No, this is good news always. This, was, uh, this is good news for everyone, not just for some people. This was good news when it was written 2,000 years ago. It has been good news throughout history, and it is still good news for us that are reading it today. Now, something about John. John is the fourth book in the New Testament. So if you're flipping around, you've got the Old Testament, right? And that's everything that was going on before Jesus and promises and prophecies that were made. And then you've got the New Testament, and that's the life of Jesus and then the early church. So John is the fourth book in the New Testament, and it's categorized in a group called the Gospels. And these are ancient biographies of the person Jesus. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the other three, and they are very similar, and so they're called the synoptic gospels because a lot of, they retell a lot of the same events from a different perspective, maybe a little different emphasis, but they have a lot of the same stuff in there. They're similar. They're the synoptic gospels. John stands alone. 90% of what we read in John is unique to this book. So, so that's, it's good news. That's what it means. And then second, as we get this overview, is let's look at the breakdown. What are some, some different parts of this book? Well, first off, the book was written by John. Go figure. The book was written by a fellow named John. Uh, he knew Jesus well. He was one of the 12 disciples or apostles. Uh, he, 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 he left his career and livelihood and spent three years with Jesus. And then after the death and resurrection, he would continue to be an early uh, a leader uh, in the church. Other New Testament books that are also attributed to John are 1st, 2nd, and third John, letters that he wrote to the church. And then the one at the very end, Rev to the Elation. So that's, that's where it's coming from. A simple way to think about how this book is broken up, how it's divided, is to see it in two halves. You got the first half and the second half. In the first half, 
Jesus is introduced to us, and then there are a block of stories uh, detailing miraculous signs and controversy around Jesus. Jesus caused quite a stir. There was a lot of controversy around him. You would think whenever he performed a miracle that that would be good news and everyone would be happy, but that is not the case because these signs were miracles with a message, and they pointed to who he really was, and not everyone liked that. And so the The first half has this block of stories, miraculous events, and then controversy around the person Jesus. All of that culminates in the first half of the book in chapters 11 and 12 with the story of Lazarus. Some of you may be familiar with that story. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. Jesus loved him, but Lazarus was sick. So the family requested that Jesus come. They wanted him to heal Lazarus. The problem was Lazarus and his family lived near Jerusalem. And the disciples and Jesus knew that for Jesus to travel near Jerusalem would be very dangerous. Remember, there was a lot of controversy around him that had stirred up in the first half of the book. And now for him to go to Jerusalem where he was under threat, it was going to be bad news. It was going to be bad news for Jesus. It was going to be bad news for the movement. Knowing this, Jesus and the disciples still went and traveled to see their friend. By this time, Lazarus had died. Jesus raised him miraculously from the dead. And subsequently, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, which was nearby, began plotting to have Jesus killed. So essentially, in the story of Lazarus, Jesus laid down his life. He went there knowing the threat, knowing the danger. Essentially, Jesus laid down his life for his friend. Well, we know that's what he came to do for all of us, ultimately, at the cross. So that's the first half of the book. The second half of the book, and and, and that first half, that's like three years of ministry. Well, the second half begins in chapters 13 and and goes through, through 17, and it really details the last night of Jesus, the final night before the crucifixion. It it has the final night and and the events there and his last words with his disciples. And he talks to them uh, uh, about things like the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, about heaven, about serving one another. And then we have an account of the death and resurrection. So that's the two halves of John. And then a couple of other other interesting things that we see in here. There are two sets of seven, the number seven, two sets of seven I am statements. You say, okay, what's the big deal with I am statements? Well, way back in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 3, I am who I am is the name that God chose to reveal himself to the people of Israel with. I am who I am, and that means I am self-existent. I'm not created by anyone else. I am self-sufficient. I don't, do not need anyone or anything else. I am God. I am who I am. And so throughout the gospel, Jesus says things like, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Or simply responds with, with the two words, I am. Making that connection between he and the eternal God. Another thing is there are a list of seven signs or miracles that point to the truth uh, that Jesus is who he says he is. And remember, these are miracles with 
a message with a truth behind them. So that's the account, the gospel account of John. But can we trust this account? Can we bank our life on what we read here in John? Can we build our life around this person, Jesus, that we read about here? Can we really, can we really, is the cross, is the resurrection, did it really happen? That's a question that deserves an answer. And there are three things that help us answer that in the affirmative, affirmative, that we can trust this account. The first is, the New Testament, uh, the John, along with the rest of the New Testament, is reliable. It passes three tests that are used to verify ancient literature. Internal evidence test, does it say that it's true, right? That it's not just, just, just made up stories, yes. The bibliographical test, that is, is what we have today consistent with what was originally written, Yes. And then third, the external evidence test. Are there other accounts, are there outside sources that that verify what we read here? Yes is the answer to that as well. Secondly, Jesus is recognized historically. This is is big, right? This isn't the only place that we read about Jesus in in the Bible, in the Gospel of John. The non-Christian Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus along with the non-Christian Jewish historian Flavius Josephus from the first century, both wrote about Jesus and events and happenings around his life. And then you've got modern secular uh, publications such as Time and Life, which often include Jesus in their persons of historical uh, significance. So this isn't the uh, old woman who lived in a shoe. This isn't Goldilocks. We're talking about a real, historical, documented person. Third, how about the influence of Jesus? If you look at the historical impact from a global perspective, Jesus has absolutely changed the world. We can see events. We can see governments uh, that have been changed because of Jesus, who he is, and what he did. But let's focus on just individual transformed lives. I'll, I'll tell a story uh, to, 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 to illustrate this. In the late 19th century, uh, in England, there was an atheist, Charles Bradlaugh. At the same time, in the slums of London, there was a fellow named Hugh Price Hughes. Hugh Hughes. There was this, this minister who worked in the slums of London, and people in the town were aware of the miraculous just stories of transformation uh, that, was, that was brought about in people's lives through, through his ministry. Well, the atheist Charles Bradlaugh challenged Mr. Hughes to debate him on the validity of the claims of Christianity. The city was interested. How would Mr. Hughes respond Well, he immediately accepted the challenge and then uh, presented one of his own. And he said, I propose to you that we each bring some concrete evidences of the validity of our beliefs in the form of men and women who have been redeemed from the lives of sin and shame by the influence of our teaching. So he said, let's bring some concrete evidence in the form of transformed lives. I will bring 100 such men and women, and I challenge you to do the same. Mr. Bradlaugh, if you can't bring 100, if you can bring just 50 people 
who have testimonies of, of their life being transformed uh, under the influence of your atheistic teachings, that will be acceptable. If you don't have 50, if you bring just 20, no, if you bring 10, if you bring just one man or woman who can testify that they have a life of joy and of self-respect because of these atheistic teachings, that will do. Well, now the city was interested. How would Mr. Bradlaugh respond to that challenge? He withdrew his challenge for the debate. So we see uh, that we can trust this account. Fourth, what is the point? What's the purpose? Why did John write this account of Jesus? Why did he take the time? Why did he write about these different events? Well, he, he had laser focus in writing this. And, and he, he comes right out and says the purpose towards the end of the book. So if we can look at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he just straight up tells us, this is why this was written down. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, the scripture says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Look, I didn't even write about everything that he did. We couldn't even fit it in this book. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He says, I wrote this down, not just for your enjoyment, not just for inspiration, not just for knowledge, I wrote this down with transformation in mind that you would believe and that as a result of your belief or trust in Jesus, you would receive life, spiritual and eternal life. Believe was his focus in writing this. A form of the word believe appears nearly 100 times in John, way more than anywhere else in the Bible. Belief was the purpose then, it's been the purpose throughout history as men and women have read this book and their lives have been transformed by Jesus, and it is the purpose today as we read it. Now, that's the overview. We're going to jump out of the helicopter. We're going to parachute down. We're going to take a closer look at the first half of chapter 1 and see how John introduces us to the person of Jesus. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to stretch as we transition. All right, so if you need to get a piece of gum, now would be the time to reach into your purse and get the gum. If you want to take a swig of water, now would be the time to do that. This is kind of like the intermission, the seventh inning stretch. All right, so we're going to John chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 14. This is a beautiful passage. If you're looking for a new scripture, as we, as we come out of the Psalms and those beautiful Holy Spirit-inspired poems, if you're looking for a new scripture that I want to write this out, I want to chew on this, I want to maybe even memorize so I can be thinking the thoughts of God throughout the day, this would be a passage to go to. I love the whole chunk here. Verse 14, when we get to the end, dynamite. All right? Chapter 1. Verse 1, ready, set, go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Here in this passage, we have an incredible introduction to the person of Jesus. And so we're just going to focus in and think about Jesus for the next few minutes. And what does John reveal to us about him? The first thing that we see is that Jesus is fully God and creator of the world. Jesus is God. He's the second person in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three distinct persons. The first two verses make this very clear. It says the word, or in Greek, logos, and, and you can think of that like a nickname for Jesus. Now, a person's words are distinct from that person, but they reveal their thoughts, uh, the, the mind. And so Jesus is, is distinct from God the Father, which we normally think about. Jesus is distinct, but he is divine. He's the same. So Jesus is the word or the, the full revelation of God. So if that's kind of like a nickname for Jesus, let's read those first two verses again. And instead of saying Word, let's just put Jesus' name there. And this is what we read. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus is eternal God. Fully God. 100% God. Jesus being God created all things. Verse 3 makes this very clear. Through him, Jesus, the word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Think back to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How does John 1 begin? In the beginning was the Word, or Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and he was God. And so we see uh, uh, how, how Jesus was involved in creation, and, and get this. He created the universe we live in, the planet we live on. Jesus isn't just a superhero. Jesus isn't just another guy. Jesus, Jesus isn't just someone that, that, that God used. Jesus is 
fully God and the creator of the world. He created light and he made night. He created the stars that we see. He made you and he even made me. Jesus is above us. He is greater than us. We often have a pretty high view of ourselves and we think that we can handle life as it's thrown to us. And we think that we can, we can be self-sufficient and we can take care of things on our own. We can work things out. Jesus is Jesus is creator. I am. Jesus is. And without him, we are nothing. We have nothing. We do not even exist. He made us. He formed us. He breathed life into us. Jesus is fully God and creator of the world. A second thing that we see in this passage as he is introduced to us with the purpose of belief in mind is that Jesus is fully man and light in the darkness. Light represents hope. Darkness represents despair. Because of sin, we're in darkness, broken and living in a broken world. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, In him, Jesus, who is God, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. Uh, anyone ever been there? Nod your head. Mammoth Cave. Yeah, we've got some folks. Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. It's the... It's the uh, longest known cave system has more than 400 miles of surveyed passageways i've been in like the lobby and then we saw like how long it was going to take to wait to be able to go in there and so i didn't go but my wife went back a few years later without me so she's explored these caves but i have not but mammoth cave longest known cave system more than 400 miles of surveyed passageways think about a cave it's deep. We're talking, this in this case, 400 miles deep. It's deep, it's dark, it's cold, but you can see a light in the distance so that you, you know there's a way out. And, and that gives you hope. Okay, I, I know where to go. I know I can get out of this dark, cold place. Life can be like a cave, cold and dark. We don't know which way to go. We get turned around. We get lost. Jesus is the light that shines in giving us hope. That's what the scripture says here. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verses 6 through 8 go on to mention this fellow named John. It's not the author of this gospel. He's referring to John we call the Baptist. And, and John the Baptist was uh, one, of, uh, like the, one of the last kind of Old Testament prophets that was calling people to turn to God. And he's on the scene. We read more about him in this gospel. And then when Jesus comes onto the scene, John is preaching and he says, there he is, Jesus, the one we've been waiting on, the rescuer, that's him over there. All I'm doing is I'm a preacher just, just telling people to turn to God and now I'm pointing you to him, the true light. So that's, that's John that's mentioned here. God loves us. Think about him being fully man and light in the darkness. God loves us with such an amazing, unimaginable love that with us in darkness, in spite of our sin, Jesus stepped in. We continue in verse 9. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. 
He was going to come into the darkness. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, because remember, he is God and creator of the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. How sad is that? And people continue today, his creation. We are made by him. We do not exist without him. But still today, we continue to not see him as, 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 as God. As not to, see, to not see him as our rescuer. That's like going to uh, you know, a family member's house and, and you get there and, and no one recognizes you. Who are you? What are you doing here? And you're like, it's me. I'm your kid. I don't know. Nice to meet you. Jesus came to his creation and he was not recognized. Let's skip down to verse 14 as we think more about Jesus being fully man and light in the darkness. And remember, this is that key one at the end that I said, if you're going to hold on to just one, check out this. It begins, the word became flesh. A carnation is the uh, state flower for Ohio. All right, go Browns today, get a big win. All right, I'm an Ohio, uh, an Ohio guy. And uh, carnation is a state flower for Ohio, uh, but we're not talking anything about flowers. Instead, we're talking about incarnation. So it says the word became flesh. The theological, the big fancy word, the theological word to describe this is incarnation. Incarnation, and that means that God became man. That's huge. And, and God became man. And then it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling. So we're going to go back to Old Testament, and we're going to, get, we're going to see some, some, some pictures here, some connections here. The word became flesh, God became man, incarnation, and he made his dwelling. It means like he pitched his tent. He pitched his tent here. In the Old Testament, remember, God revealed himself to Moses and the people of Israel, I am who I am. They went on and they were, they were living in the desert as this large mass of people. And right in the center of camp, they had different families or tribes that would camp in different spots. And right in the middle of camp, the centerpiece was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a, a giant tent system, and that is where sacrifices were made to God. That is where they would come to worship God. That's where he made his presence known among the people. The word became flesh and made his dwelling or tabernacled among us. God made his presence known among his people in the person Jesus. So we, it goes on, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. If we go back to the people of Israel and Moses in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses asks God, Show me your glory. I want to see you, God. I want to see your magnificence. And John writes, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. So we have seen in the person Jesus all the magnificence, all the beauty, all the glory of God. And it says he is full of grace and truth. He's fully God and fully man. He's full of grace and truth, not one or the other, but both. Now, there's a story that I, a short story that I read every year around Christmas time. 
I, uh, I, 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 it just, uh, I just really like it a lot. And I'm going to read it right now. It's by the, the Danish philosopher uh, from the 19th century, Soren Kierkegaard. And uh, it's, it's, again, not Christmas time right now, but at Christmas time, we are celebrating the incarnation. Remember, not a carnation, uh, but that's a flower, but the incarnation, God becoming man. That's what we celebrate around Christmas. And right now, we're looking at the, the first chapter in John, uh, and we're reading about the incarnation, God becoming man. And so we've got this story to describe that. Uh, it talks about how, how God love, God's love moved him to come to our rescue. So check this out. Imagine there was a king that loved a humble maiden. She had no royal pedigree, no education, no standing in the court. She dressed in rags. She lived in a shack. She led the ragged life of a peasant. But for reasons no one could ever quite figure out, the king fell in love with this girl the way kings sometimes do. Why he should love her is beyond explaining, but love her he did, and he could not stop loving her. Then there awoke in the heart of the king an anxious thought. How was he to reveal his love to the girl? How could he bridge the chasm of station and position that separated them? His advisors, of course, would tell him to simply command her to be his queen. For he was a man of immense power. Every statesman feared his wrath. Every foreign power trembled before him. Every courtier groveled in the dust at the king's voice. She would have no power to resist. She would owe him an eternal debt of gratitude. But power... Even unlimited power cannot command love. He could force her body to be present in his palace. He could not force her love for him to be present in her heart. He might be able to gain her obedience this way, but coerced submission is not what he wanted. He longed for intimacy of heart and oneness of spirit. All the power in the world cannot unlock the door to the human heart. It must be opened from the inside. His advisors might suggest that the king give up this love, give his heart to a more worthy woman. But this the king will not do, cannot do, and so his love is also his pain. The king could try to bridge the chasm between them by elevating her to his position. He could shower her with gifts, dress her in purple and silk, have her crowned queen, But if he brought her to his palace, if he radiated the sun of his magnificence over her, if she saw all the wealth and power and pomp of his greatness, she would be overwhelmed. How would he know, or she for that matter, if she loved him for himself or for all that he gave her? How could she know that he loved her and would love her still even if she had remained only a humble peasant? Every alternative, every other alternative came to nothing. There was only one way. So one day, the king rose, left his throne, removed his crown, relinquished his scepter, and laid aside his royal robes. He took upon himself the life of a peasant. He dressed in rags, scratched out a living in the dirt, groveled for food, dwelt in a shack. He did not just take on the outward appearance of a servant. It became his actual life, his nature, his burden. He became as ragged as the one he loved so that she could be united to him forever. It was the only way. That is what Jesus has done for us. Fully God, eternal, creator of the world. 
but he loved us so much and he saw the darkness that we were in, broken people, empty, uh, not satisfied, looking for joy, looking for peace. He saw this world full of sin, full of hate, chaos, disaster, death. So God, creator, loving us, stepped in. God became man and came so that he could be our rescuer, so that he could give us spiritual life, true joy, true peace, true purpose, so that he could give us eternal life and dwell with him forever. Fully God became fully man that we might believe and become. Verses 12 and 13 says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed, that laser focus of the author of this gospel, the point, the purpose is that we would believe. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To believe in Jesus means to put your trust in him. Well, what does that really mean to, to trust in Jesus? Well, remember Mammoth Cave, dark, scary, uh, easy to get turned around in place that we talked about earlier. Picture this. You're in a cave. It's dark. You're feeling scared. You're getting worried. It's getting cold. You're lost. You've gotten all turned around. You don't know if you'll be able to find your way out. You don't know if anybody will be able to find you and rescue you. You could go to the left. You could go to the right. You could go in that direction over there, but you look up ahead and you see some light shining in. So you just simply start walking towards it. Life can be like that cave. We can choose different paths. What's going to fulfill us? Am I going to find joy? Am I going to find purpose over here? But then we see Jesus and we decide to start walking towards him. We believe that he is our rescuer. We believe that he is fully God and he became fully man that he might rescue us. And, and, and we, we, we see his life. We see his death. We see his resurrection on our behalf. We hear his teachings. And so we simply start walking towards Jesus. That's what it's like to believe in Jesus, to see him, to see the light, and begin walking towards him. And as Scripture says, if we believe in, if we trust in, then we become children of God. Well, what does that even mean? Uh, Do I want to be a child of God? Well, get this. To be a child of God means that you are adopted into his family. That means that no matter who you are, where you come from, no matter your past, no matter your background, God has said, I want to adopt you into my family. I choose you. I accept you the way that you are. And I love you. That's what it means to be a child of God, to to be chosen, accepted, loved by him. And not only do you gain a heavenly father, but God's got a big family. And so when you're adopted in his family, then you become a part of his big, sweet family. We call that the church, where you have brothers and sisters in Christ who will love you and accept you the way that you are. To be a child of God means that you are reconciled to God. Remember, there's that great chasm between God and us. 
Jesus had to come to be the mediator, to, to reconcile. So to be a child of God means that you are reconciled to him. It means that your sins are forgiven. No matter what they are, no matter how many they are, your sins are forgiven. You're declared innocent before him. You're declared innocent before him, and when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus who came to be our substitute, to pay the price that we could not pay. So to be a child of God means that you have spiritual and eternal life. The purpose of this gospel was belief. And so we close with these questions. What should we believe? That Jesus is the rescuer. Jesus is the rescuer. Why should we believe? To receive spiritual and eternal life. Now, when we gather here in corporate worship, God is present. He uh, delights in the songs that we, of praise that we sing to him. And then God uses his word to star, stir our minds and our hearts. And then hopefully to move us to action. An appropriate response to hearing the word of God this morning uh, might be to adore Jesus even more as you consider the great act of love he showed in coming to our rescue. It may mean uh, an appropriate response may be to sing a little louder, to sing with a smile on your heart, and maybe even let it creep onto your face as we sing about Jesus, our rescuer. Uh, another appropriate response would be to look to Jesus Say, I'm in that cave, and I don't know which way to go, to find joy, to find peace, to find purpose, to find life, but I see Jesus, and so I'm going to start walking towards him. Now, you could begin that walk today by praying a simple prayer like this. Jesus, I believe that you are the light of the world. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Please forgive me my sins and make me a child of God. Amen. You could begin walking towards Jesus simply with a prayer of faith like that. You could respond in any number of other ways that God has stirred your heart towards love and obedience for him. But respond in some way. Uh, there, we want to make it simple to help you respond, to help you take that next step. If it's to trust Jesus, if it's to, uh, to, to link up uh, in a smaller network here through a ministry team or, or if it's to take that next step of baptism, we, we want to come alongside and just help you make that next step because we're in this together on Team Jesus. And so there's three simple ways that you can respond. Uh, that is today, before you leave, stop by the Connect Corner. That's in the back. Uh, talk to one of our friends there uh, who would love to talk with you, to pray with you, to answer any questions you have about Jesus or about connecting more in this church. So stop by the Connect Corner. Another way that you could respond is through those Connect cards. You can mark any spiritual decisions that you're thinking about or that you're making. You can also do that online by texting CONNECTHC to 94000. And then a third way that you can respond that we encourage you to is just to take action. God doesn't want us just sitting on our hands, right? He doesn't want us just raising our hands on, on one hour on a Sunday. Uh, he wants us taking action, following him, living for him. And so what, how God has stirred your heart uh, and stirred your mind, then put that into action this week as well. Oh, right now, we're going to stand. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing a final closing song together uh, to Jesus, our rescuer. And so get ready for that, and let's sing it and sing it 
sing it with these truths of who Jesus is and why he came for you uh, in mind. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for lavishing, for pouring out your love on us by sending Jesus to be our rescuer. And that by, by faith, making us, welcoming us, transforming us, that we might be your children, that we might be accepted, that we might be loved, that we might belong to something bigger than ourselves, that we might be justified and innocent and righteous before you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And now please uh, (laughs) receive uh, this song of praise that we sing to you. Amen.